You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so uh, for, for the sake of brevity, uh, we're, we're going to try to kind of work through this uh, very quickly. I know that it's a lot of text this morning, but um, there's, there's essentially three things that I want us to look at. And of course, like any good pastors, there, there's three things underneath each of those three things that I want us to talk about. And so, um, so the first thing I want to talk about is three, three reasons uh, to believe in the resurrection, right? Uh, I, I don't doubt at all. Um, that there are probably several of us, maybe even many of us in the room this morning that um, have maybe not arrived with uh, the same uh, exaltation that, that Cole or I have, or, or those of us who are leading in worship, or maybe those who are uh, lifting their hands while singing or singing loudly or praying, right? Maybe some of us, it's just kind of like, hey, like I do this favor for my family twice a year on Easter and Christmas, but beyond that, like I'm just trying to get this thing over with, Right? Um, and yet, I do think, I do think that um, we have some good intellectual reasons for, for believing in the, in the resurrection, and I think, honestly, especially as we sort of come to the conclusion of, the, of, of our time together this morning, we'll talk about Thomas, uh, and I think we see him wrestle with those, and so I just want to uh, give you three reasons uh, to believe in the resurrection, and, and the first one's fairly obvious, and that's that according to the account here in John, right, uh, both Mary Magdalene Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved all come to the tomb of Jesus, the place where Jesus was buried after his death, and the tomb is empty. Now, let me, let me just say this. At first, you might say, well, okay, there, there could be any number of reasons that that tomb is empty, right? Well, let me just, let me just say this. I think there's, um, there's a couple of things or a couple of reasons why we should look to the empty tomb as a reason to believe in the resurrection, not just in this idea that maybe it was some sort of hoax, right? I think that um, many people um, inject into the disciples and inject into the writers of the Bible sort of this great intellect, as if they had sort of this this great scheme, this masterminding scheme by which they would sort of um, inherit world domination, and that that was sort of worth you know, all of, the, uh, all of the awkwardness and the difficulty of, of sort of fabricating this story. And yet, there's a couple of clues from John that we can take um, as to why this, this story would be true. Um, one of the first ones being that the first person that arrives at the tomb and finds it empty, and the first person to whom Jesus is revealed is Mary Magdalene. Now, for us, that might not seem like any great detail, um, it might be something that we just read past and we go, okay, great. I don't see how that would maybe um, reinforce or, or cause me the greater question, my belief that this didn't happen. And yet, here's the thing. In the first century, if you want to start a rumor in hopes that it will become credible, you don't start it with the testimony of a woman. The testimony of a woman was inadmissible in court. Right? So if you're trying to, again, if you're trying to testify to a story, what you would probably do is say, hey, you know what, this whole Mary Magdalene thing, let's just scoot that to the side, and I'll just talk about the fact that Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, showed up. We'll just doctor that out. But beyond that, right, I think we have some, some popular explanations for why the tomb is empty, right? This is, and these are scholarly works, so this isn't just... Um, you know, here's some, here's some reasons that I thought of while I was tossing one back, right? 
Here's some popular, popular scholarly explanations for why the tomb was empty. Number one, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. In rebuttal to that, I only have one sentence, right? If the disciples went to the wrong tomb, then all that the powers that be needed to do in order to crush this silly, inconvenient rumor is to direct them to the right one and to produce the body and prove in so doing that the disciples really were just morons. They took the wrong turn, like, like Apple Maps took them the wrong way. Second popular explanation, the body was stolen, right? And this one maybe sounds a little bit more credible, right? Okay, sure, sounds, sounds reasonable enough. But again, if there's some marvelous plan to try and back up what these disciples believe to be true, you're really giving the disciples a level of credit that they have not earned in the testimony about their lives, especially in the book of John. In that time and time again throughout not only the Gospel of John, but throughout the other accounts of Jesus' life, over the three years that they follow him in his life and ministry, these guys aren't sort of revealed to be the sharpest tools in the shed. Their incompetence, their cowardice is quite clearly on on display. Most recently in the fact that Peter, chief of all of them, the the, the sort of the, the head of the crew, right, just recently denied Jesus three times. What makes that guy conjure up this plan of, well, maybe I'll steal the body, and then when I do it, I'll be willing to die for the fact that it's true, even though it's not. These aren't the guys you're looking to in order to hatch a plan for world domination. This is more pinky than brain, right? The fact is that the tomb, regardless of whether you believe it means that Jesus was resurrected or not, was empty and a body was never produced in spite of the fact that all of the political, spiritual, and social hierarchy of the day had a vested interest in producing one, even if it was just a lookalike, right? Even if it was just like, hey, let's just grab some dude, let's mutilate him enough that he's unrecognizable, and let's just say, here it is, here's Jesus' body. And it still never happens. The tomb was empty and a body was never produced. Here's a second reason I think you should believe in the resurrection. Um, the the postmortem appearances, right? We have one of those accounts here in John, right? In that Jesus comes, he appears to the 10 disciples, right? Judas is out at this point. Uh, there's 11 of them left. Thomas is not there, right? Jesus appears to them and then Jesus returns and appears to Thomas, but then we also have record in, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, that Jesus appeared to many others beyond that, right? This is what um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then he says this, most of whom are still alive. You want to know why he adds that clause? Because he's saying, go ask him. 
Most of these brothers are still alive. Go find, they're there. The people that have witnessed Jesus after his resurrection, they are alive. And they would be more than willing to testify to this reality to you. Remember that, right? So some of you would go, all right, 1 Corinthians is in the Bible. Use the Bible to prove the Bible. Great, good job. And yet what you have to remember is that before 1 Corinthians is a book in the Bible, it's just a letter. It's a letter from a guy named Paul to a bunch of people in a place called Corinth. And it's written within 20 years of Jesus' passing. You know what we call that? We call that a primary source. And he's making reference to other primary sources. Third reason I think that you should believe in the resurrection is something that I've already made reference to already, which is the boldness of the disciples, right? In this portion of text in John, we find, we find these disciples, these, these courageous followers of Jesus, huddled together, locked in a room, what does it say? For fear of the Jews, right? This is your all-conquering, world domination, setting out for ultimate power, going to conquer the Roman Empire, going to witness until I die, disciples huddled in a room with the door locked for fear of the Jews. All of a sudden, this crew, these men, these women, turn into like SEAL Team 6 for Jesus. What does that? Like, what does that? I think it's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Almost all of them, as far as we can tell from, from even secular historians, right? Um, all of them arrived at a most painful death, with the exception of John. What is it that takes them to that place? What is it that flips that courage switch in their hearts? What is it that causes that to become a reality for them? People say money and power, but the reality is that they enjoyed neither. It was not in any way financially, socially, politically advantageous in that time. It might be now, so you might say that people abuse the resurrection of Jesus for money and for power now. Yeah, that might be true now, but it wasn't then. It wasn't for these men. It wasn't for these women. So those are just three quick reasons that I think you should believe, again, apart from, apart from anything else, why you should believe that that tomb was empty on that day, that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Now, here's three implications of Jesus' resurrection, right? The first is that um, because of the resurrection, we can believe all that Jesus said in his earthly ministry. Right? Like Jesus made a lot of claims. If, we, if you've been reading along with us in the book of John, like he's made a lot. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I am the true vine. You are the branches, right? I, like time and time again, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, right? He's made all of these claims. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He says that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Right? Jesus spoke of his coming death at least 16 times prior to it happening. We've seen, uh, I believe, two or three of them in John. 
twice he was challenged to give some miraculous sign to prove his authority. That happened in in John chapter 2. And his response was, you'll see, this temple will be torn down and I will rebuild it in three days. Looking at the resurrection, we can now see one of the most ironic, I think, moments in Scripture, which is that the, the, the high court, the Jewish authority of the day, the highest court in the land, the supreme of supreme courts, if you will, judges Jesus condemned as a blasphemer, right? He claimed to be the Son of God. We crucified him as a just punishment for blaspheming the name of God, and now he's done. And yet in his resurrection... The verdict of the highest human court was overturned by the highest universal court, the authority of God himself. The ultimate appeals case to the ultimate supreme court by the resurrection, Jesus' words are vindicated. Where he was condemned for blasphemy, he is now designated by the resurrection the son of God. Where he was executed for sedition, that means claiming to be the king, God made him Lord and Christ, right? Colossians tells us that he's the firstborn from the dead so that, in, so that he might be preeminent in all things, that he is before all things, Lord of heaven and earth, hanged on a tree under the curse of God, presumed to be under the curse of God. He was vindicated as the savior of those to whom that curse belonged. Resurrection substantiates the claims of Jesus during his ministry, his claim to be God, his claim to have authority over all things, including that which most befalls us, our death. The second thing it does, it guarantees the effects of his death, right? We talked on Good Friday, we made some some significant claims on Good Friday, which is that because Jesus died, not only is the penalty for our sin paid, But in fact, what also takes place is that our sin is actually put onto Jesus. The wrath of God is exercised against that sin while it is on Jesus. And in return, we get Jesus' perfect good record, perfect good works, His righteousness simultaneously imputed onto us. That that's the exchange that happens in the death of Jesus. That's why we can look at the horrific death of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus by his father, and say, that's good. But the resurrection is what guarantees the fact that those things actually took place. In raising Christ from the dead, God set his seal of approval on Christ's work. As we read on Good Friday from the cross, right? Jesus cried, it is finished. The Greek word here has a number of meanings, but in the business world, it meant the payment of a debt. So without stretching the illustration too far, what we could say this morning is that the resurrection is the receipt for the payment that Jesus made. It's proof 
It's proof that our sins have been purchased. It's proof that the debt that was there has been paid for, that Jesus' check cleared, that his credit card was not declined, and that all of it was swallowed up, taken by him. Paul says this in Romans 4, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. His death and His resurrection work hand in hand, not only to bring us salvation, but to make us sure that that salvation is secure. And then third and finally, the resurrection guarantees the final triumph of good over evil. Jesus' resurrection is pictured in the New Testament not only as a triumph over death, but also as a triumph over sin and evil, which are ultimately what caused death in the first place. He is heralded as the victor over Satan and all that lies behind the brokenness that is so evident in our world today. Here's a a poor man's illustration. The victory of the allied forces, uh, so I'm a kind of a history major, so sorry if this doesn't land for you. Um, The victory of the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day was not the end of the war, right? However, it did guarantee the final defeat of the German forces. Similarly, the victory achieved by Christ through His death and resurrection on that first Easter morning is the guarantee of God's final triumph over evil. By his perfect life, his death for our sins, and his resurrection, it is Christ who has won the right to be the final judge of the human race. Paul, again, preaching in the city of Athens, puts it this way. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So Jesus, right, is not only resurrected in victory over death for those who believe, he's risen in victory over sin and over evil for good. And what we have right now is an opportunity to respond to his grace in kind before he returns and finally finishes, completes that work of judgment. The work of salvation is done. The work of judgment is yet to come. And he has the authority to do so precisely because of the fact of who He is. So I've given you three reasons that I think we should believe in the resurrection. I've given you three implications of that resurrection. Glorious and good, though they are, they are incomplete in that we could talk at length about the implications of Christ's resurrection for His people and for the world and for all of creation. But I do want to spend some time in our actual text this morning, and so I want to look at three stages um, in Thomas's journey to belief. Because I think that probably most of us, um, unless the Lord kind of graced you um, with uh, a family that you were brought in where where doubt in Christ was never something that that fostered in you, um, and, and I feel like that's probably very few of us in the room, right? I think most of us probably have either experienced what Thomas experienced in his skepticism and have now been graced to overcome that, or we are currently sitting in this skepticism that we 
see from Thomas in these few verses. And so I'm going to just read from verse 24. It says this in John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, right? So Jesus just appeared to the disciples um, fairly recently, all of them there except Thomas. Like, talk about being the odd guy out, right? That, uh, that's not the party you want to miss, right? Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never believe. Now here's the thing, right? I mean, let's just kind of insert ourselves into this situation. I think Thomas gets a lot of flack, and I don't think he deserves it, ultimately. And I think some people think that Jesus gives Thomas flack, but he doesn't do that. We'll talk about what Jesus says says to him in just a minute. Right? Ten, Ten of your closest friends, ten of your closest friends who you've spent the last three years Um, hanging out with Jesus with, right, say, Thomas, missed it. You weren't here, but Jesus came, and we've seen him, right? And Thomas is like, I'm not falling for this one, right? I mean, like, I just don't think that that's an unreasonable thing. It's either A, a ridiculous prank, or it's like, just, okay, so why would he appear to all of you and not to me? That doesn't make any sense. What is it that leads Thomas with such certainty, with such conviction to say, look, unless I see, and not only see, but unless I put my finger in these places where I know Jesus to have borne wounds because I watched him, then I will never believe. I think there's something more going on than just sort of the, the, one, the outrageous claim of the disciples I think that really, I mean, Thomas is just incredibly disappointed. He's disillusioned, right? You have to understand that up until a short three days ago, Thomas had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the death of Jesus for Thomas was not just the death of, of Jesus, of a man, right? It was a death of everything that he had staked his entire life on. And so with Jesus, not only did Jesus die, but Thomas's belief that Jesus could do and would do what he thought he was coming to do was dead also. Thomas's doubt is born out of a desire for genuine faith, not just gullibility. Right? If he is to be brought back to belief in Jesus, he needs to be clearly, beyond all doubt, convinced that the Jesus who died was in genuine continuity with this ostensibly resurrected Jesus. And the only way to do that for Thomas, beyond all shadow of a doubt, beyond all shadow of ambiguity, beyond all hallucination or trickery, is for Thomas to literally see and touch the specific and the mortal wounds of Jesus. Who's seen the prestige in the room? Anybody? A couple of you. Awesome. I I wasn't sure uh, if this would land for anyone. But for those of you who haven't seen the prestige, right? 
Here's, here's the basic storyline. You have two, two uh, magicians, right? And they are competing uh, to try and have the best trick, right? And so uh, the, the whole movie is sort of this escalation of, of, uh, of wonder, wondrous tricks that they're trying to perform in order that essentially they become the most renowned or the most well-known magician um, in their current context. And there's this one trick, right, that essentially becomes the ultimate trick of the movie. It's the trick of all tricks. It's the trick that can't be explained. And as they're trying to figure out each other's tricks, this is the one that the rival magician can't figure out, right? The trick is called the transported man, right? And so Christian Bale's character, yes, Christian Bale's in it. So if that gives you some more interest in seeing it, I would recommend it. Um, Christian Bale's character, Alfred Borden, gets into a cabinet on stage right and gets out of another cabinet on stage left, right? Seems rather simple. And yet, Angier, the other magician, Hugh Jackman, he can't figure it out. He can't figure out how Borden does it. And he goes to great lengths to try and replicate it himself. And there's this whole weird scene with Tesla and, and actually trying to scientifically make it happen and all this other stuff. And Safe to say it doesn't work out. Spoiler alert. So plug your ears if you need to. Spoiler alert. Borden has a twin. That was it. Like that was the whole, at the, at the end of the, you're like, how did he, how is he doing this? Angier racking his brain. He's literally going crazy trying to figure out how he did this. Borden has a twin. Sorry, I ruined it. That's essentially what Thomas is trying to avoid here. He's like, look, you might find someone who looks like Jesus, right? He might talk a little bit like Jesus. He might have Jesus' accent. He may have been born in a town close to Jesus. Mary might know him. Mary might think it's his son because she's in some crazy grief, right? He's like, no, no, look. If Jesus is really resurrected from the dead in the body, in the flesh, not a ghost, not a hallucination, not like, hey, we all smoked peyote while you were gone and we all saw Jesus together. <laughs> He's like, the only way, the only way is if I put my finger in the wounds in his hands, if I stick my hand in his side, that is the only way that I will believe. This is the only way I can know without a doubt, that this resurrected Jesus is, in fact, the Jesus that was crucified, dead, and buried three days ago. And so here's what happens next. It says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Eight days after the other disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, he now appears to them again while Thomas is present. And what is the first thing that Jesus says? One, peace be with you, right? But then he looks Thomas straight in the eye. And he doesn't say, I can't believe you didn't believe these guys. How useless are you? 
And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus meets Thomas in his doubt in a way that speaks to his specific kind of doubt. Without even having been present for Thomas' statements to the other disciples. Right? Jesus isn't in the corner with a hat down low going, oh, I heard what, I heard what Thomas says, so I'm going to come back in eight days and I'm going to let him, you know. No. Jesus shows up and he knows Thomas's doubts and he speaks directly to them. So here's the thing. Thomas has a unique kind of doubt. It might not be the same kind of doubt that you and I have. We may doubt Jesus for any number of reasons. It might be the evil that we see in the world. It might be because we lost someone who's special to us. We might doubt for any number of reasons. And yet, the reality is that even though Jesus is the resurrected Savior of the world, the King of everything that can be seen or known, all of reality, right? That's what Colossians 1 is all about. Go home and read it when you get a chance, right? This is Jesus. And rather than chastising and chiding Thomas, he comes in and he speaks to Thomas's specific doubts. And then this is what happens next. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, intellectual, I'm sorry, faith is not purely an intellectual exercise. It would seem so from this point in, 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 in Thomas's experience with Jesus, right? And that Thomas is like, give me empirical proof so that I can know intellectually. And yet what we see here, what we see is a great transition, right, from verse 25, where we see this guy who is utterly unwilling to even entertain the idea that Jesus' resurrection could be true, to now arriving just a few short verses later in verse 28, where he's not only intellectually proclaiming, you are God, but he's saying, you are my God. And so the intellectual exercise that Thomas has been through, right? He's got an eight-day gap. So just think about that, right? Disciples say, he's risen. You go eight days going, well, remember when he said this thing? And remember when he did this thing and this thing and that thing? And how? Like, what? You know? And then, and then he sees Jesus and all of those pieces come together. And it doesn't just, again, it doesn't just end upon surely your God. It's your my God. You're my Lord. And so faith is not purely an exercise in the intellectual. It's also an emotional and a spiritual reality. It's personal. And you see, this is my concern. And this is kind of where I want to draw us to a conclusion this morning. This is my concern with many who would consider themselves Christian, right? In that unlike the disciples, we currently, at least for now, find ourselves in, in, in a culture um, in which it is advantageous for us to assent to the resurrection of Jesus, where it is somewhat popular and culturally acceptable, although that is dwindling. But my concern is that there are probably many of us in the room who have assented mentally, intellectually to a risen Jesus, but we have, 
We have not allowed him to take any personal bearing upon our lives. He may be risen as a king, but we're not willing to obey him as one. And so we have a theological belief, but we don't have a functional belief. Right? Meaning we have, we have a belief about God, but it's not something that we actually operate from, like that changes the way we live. The resurrection of Jesus rearranges not only Thomas's theological beliefs, right? Thomas believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was coming in to usher in Israel, that he was going to defeat all of Israel's enemies, including the Roman Empire, and that he was going to establish sort of this great and glorious, unending kingdom for the Jewish people, right? That gets rearranged with Jesus. But those theological beliefs also become functional in that now we can see that Thomas, that Thomas begins to live with a worldview that, that involves a risen Savior, such that not only is his doubt erased, but it is turned to such confidence that he is eventually speared because he won't stop talking about the resurrected Jesus. So if you're a Christian in the room this morning, two things. Number one, rejoice over what the resurrection has accomplished for you. Those three implications and the thousands of others that we could talk about and will talk about until our dying breath together, that's what the joy of this community is. Right? Rejoice in those things. Assent to those things intellectually, but also personally, in your rejoicing. Share that good news with others. The resurrection changes everything, including how we value our reputations. And as it becomes less and less profitable to proclaim this wildest of stories, this craziest of ideas, we're going to need to be reminded that we can't just have theological beliefs without them becoming functional, without them being something that drives us forward, without them being something that rearranges all of what we value and all of what we hope for. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we have eternal life. And it's not, it's not a life comprised of the value systems that we've constructed on our own but rather those that he has constructed. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, two things for you. First, do the intellectual work. Right Again, I think what we see in Thomas and what, and what is affirmed even by Jesus is that faith is not purely emotional. Faith is not purely, well, I believe and so it is. There is an intellectual element to it. Otherwise, why would these guys even go about recording what Jesus has done? Why would we even have these testimonies? Why write it down? If all I need is faith, why would I add written testimony to it? Why would I say, go talk to this person and this person and this person? They were alive. They saw him. They were there. Do the intellectual work. Thomas did for eight days. Wrestle like Thomas wrestled. And second, while you're wrestling, don't be afraid to share your doubts. 
both with Jesus and with others, right? And then I'm sure that in, those, in that space of eight days, Thomas was going, all right, Jesus, if this is real, like, you got, you got to give me something. These guys are all saying it's real. You got to give me something. And then he's saying also to the disciples, look, I, I'm not there. I'm not there right now. He's open. He's sharing those doubts. And if you don't have a place to do that, my hope and my prayer is that this would be that place. My, my hope and my prayer is that this would be a community where you can do those things without fear, knowing that we don't expect anything from you. We simply believe in a risen Savior that changes everything, and He's changed everything for us, and our hope and our desire is that He would do the same for you, and that we might then, as verse 30 says in verse 31, that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we might experience life in His name, that we might experience those words that Jesus says time and time again in the text, peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. And as we go to the communion table, and we are reminded of your broken body, your shed blood on our behalf, we pray, Father, we pray, Father, that we would take it in the glorious joy of the resurrection. That this body that was broken for us, that this blood that was shed for us, is now made new, not devoid of the scars and the cost, but made new in resurrection victory for our sake. And Lord, I pray for those of us in the room this morning that may be doubting. I ask, Father, that you would meet them in their doubts. I ask, Father, that they would be open with their doubts and that they would do the intellectual work and walk alongside the people of God. People of God. Um, and in so doing, that they would experience the presence of your very self in your spirit among your people. Thank you for this sacrament for the church that we get to celebrate together. And Lord, may we go today rejoicing for what you've done on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray.